Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would open it to us today. That you would send us your spirit through your son. That we might have faith to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. So good to see all of you here today. Uh, some of you may remember about two months ago I preached a sermon on Luke 14. And I began, a, I began that sermon by singing a line to you from an old country song. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Um, probably singing that to you once was enough. But, you know, I, I really it was a sermon on humility. And I think it's probably one of my best sermons, honestly. Um, I was really proud of it. Uh, it was a sermon about the parable of the wedding feast and principally about Jesus' concluding words in that parable where he says that everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. That everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Well... It appears that Jesus is pretty sure that by now we will have forgotten that message. So he says, uh, gives to us another parable to remind us that everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. That everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. It's a well-known parable. It's usually called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And with a quick glance, it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? One is prideful, one, the other is humble, so don't be prideful, be humble. But it's hard to be humble. And so straight, that straightforward message really may be enough. But this parable is, is actually a little like a mural that my family saw this summer when we were on vacation. From a distance, it was a, a, a picture, a pretty simple picture of two people uh, Two, two people's faces, they were smiling lovingly and looking at one another. But as you got closer, you realized that it was actually a much more complicated picture. Because it was a, the big picture was made up of lots of little pictures, and each one with their own story. You've probably seen computer images like this. It was, it was, this was a painting that was, was done. It was a really wonderful mural. But this parable, as you get closer to it, it gets a little more complicated. And, and, and in fact, there's a sort of upside-down feeling to it, isn't it? One man is a good man, morally upright, religiously devoted. He's faithful to his wife. He's generous with his abundance. And twice a week, he gives up food for prayer. He is undoubtedly a community leader, well-regarded around town, and his rector is surely after him to be on the vestry. But the other, the other is a tax collector. And what we know about tax collectors in Jesus' day is that they were inevitably dishonest. They were hated in their community. And these were usually Jews who collected taxes from Jews to give to the Gentile Roman oppressors and occupiers. And culturally speaking, that was bad enough. But the tax collectors were actually known for getting extra rich by taking a little more than they had to from their Jewish countrymen. And Jesus is often asked things like, why are you hanging out with 
tax collectors and sinners. They're always lumped together, tax collectors and sinners. That's who this was. And so in this parable, the first man is culturally and religiously regarded as a paragon of virtue. The second man is to be regarded as a pariah. He is meant to get under the skin of Jesus' audience. I mean, what would he even be doing in the temple? We don't know what compelled him to get there. We do know that he's having something of a personal crisis. He's overcome with guilt. Can't even bring himself to look up towards heaven. He's beating his breast. Tears are running down his face as he mutters, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think Jesus' audience would have gasped. Maybe gotten that hollow feeling in their stomach when Jesus says that it was this man, the bilking tax collector, rather than the faithful Pharisee who comes away justified before God. What about you? How does that make you feel? How does that sit with you? Because, I mean, there's a sense in which the first guy is the one that you have been told to be since Sunday school. That's what our kids were getting. That's what they're hearing over there. Be this guy. Maybe not. <laughs> but, I mean, he shaped his whole life around the demands of God's law, and he's thankful for it. That seems pretty good. But when we come in closer... We see that it is not the two men themselves that are being contrasted, nor even the exterior of their moral lives. Rather, Jesus is contrasting their attitudes. Their attitudes towards themselves, their attitudes towards God, and their attitudes towards others. Remember, this is a parable Jesus tells to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. I spent a lot of my early Christian life thinking that God's grace was sort of like a butterfly band-aid. It was meant to hold you together until you could heal up to be the person you were supposed to be. And so naturally I assumed that that box of band-aids was going to run out before too long, right? God's going to look in there and go, come on Gibbs, we're running low. I thought... For a long time. The point was to get my life to look like the Pharisees. And that wasn't just a misunderstanding of grace. That was was a misunderstanding of Christianity. You see, this Pharisee, thankful though he may be, sincere as he is in his gratitude, he's thanking God for how great he is. He's thanking God that he has come so much further than others have. He's keeping score, but he's looking at the wrong game. And listen, Jesus has made a fine line. like It is razor thin. Can it be wrong to thank God that you're not an adulterer? Can it be wrong to thank God or give God the credit if you are giving 10% of your income to the church? I don't think so. Gratitude 
is appropriate. But where he wanders over that fine line, what he forgets is that if God has given him the power or the strength to live a righteous life, that even the ability to receive that power is itself a gift. It is not in and of himself. He should take no credit. The score is God 1,000, him 0, but God gave him the trophy anyway. That is grace. And yet there is so much self-congratulation in his prayer that he is blind to his own need of grace and he feels justified in his judgments of others. Listen, i got to tell you, if i got to pick between the lives of these two men, for you, my congregation, and for me, myself, for us as Christians, I'm going with the Pharisee. Right? I want you to be faithful in your marriages. I want you to be just and to be generous. I want you to shape your life around the commandments of God. But for you and me, I want it to come from something not that we boast about or take credit for, but I want it to come as fruit from a heart of prayer like the tax collectors. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not because I want you to feel bad or ashamed all the time. Of course I don't. I want you to relish the forgiveness that we have received. I want you to live trustingly in the grace of God. But the heart that continually asks God for mercy is fertile soil for the fruit of the Spirit. The heart that continually asks God for mercy is fertile soil for the fruit of the Spirit. The heart that continually sees their need for Jesus is the heart that continually enjoys Jesus as Redeemer and friend rather than constantly trying to live up to Jesus as a measuring stick. The heart that never loses sight of the need of grace that drinks continually from the fountain of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is the heart that sees a fellow sinner with compassion rather than contempt and with joy rather than judgment. I wonder if it was the Pharisee that the theologian John Gerstner had in mind when he once wrote that the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it is your damnable good works. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sin, it is your damnable good works. The reason is because whoever exalts themselves is going to be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. I don't know if you ever read the short story by Flannery O'Connor called Revelation. Marvelous, she's a marvelous author. And she usually writes of of times in Mississippi, usually in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, somewhere in there, different time, different era. In this story, she writes of, uh, in, in Revelation, she writes of Mrs. Ruby Turpin's trip to the doctor's office. Mrs. Turpin is a large and well dressed woman. She has wrinkles around her eyes from laughing so much. And she can sing nearly every word of the gospel songs that are playing in the lobby. As Mrs. Turpin is chatting sweetly with the others in the lobby, we find out what she actually thinks of them. Like the white trashy lady with the paper ribbon ponytail. 
and her little boy with the runny nose that's actually dirtier than Mrs. Turpin's pigs. And what she thinks of the brooding college girl with the pitiable acne and the surly attitude hiding snobbishly behind a book. In the summer. Who reads in the summer? And Mrs. Turpin's chatting to the girl's mother and says with feeling, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. I mean, I think of all I could have been besides myself, and I think of all I got, a little of everything, and, and a good dis- disposition besides. I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. And it was at that moment that the girl uh, with the acne threw her book and hit Mrs. Turpin square between the eyes and says, go back to hell from where you came, you old warthog. As the story comes to a close, Mrs. Turpin now has a very dark bruise above her brow and she's feeling sorry for herself and she's telling God that she's not a warthog and she did not come from hell. And as the sun sets over her Mississippi field, she is given a vision. The vision of a vast swinging bridge going from earth up to heaven and upon that bridge is a parade of souls. And at the front of the line is this great horde of trashy people. And they are clean for the first time in their lives. Along with them, the freaks and the lunatics, leaping and shouting. In the back of the line was a tribe that Mrs. Turpin recognized immediately. They were respectable people, like her and her husband. People who had been given a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. And they were marching with great dignity and they were the only ones singing on key. But their faces were clearly shocked that they had been relegated to the back of the line. And she could see that even their virtues were being burned away. And there under the twilight stars with the chorus of crickets all around, Mrs. Turpin finally shouts out an honest hallelujah. That's the end of the story. But what I understand to have happened is that Mrs. Turpin's heart has been changed from the heart of the Pharisee to the heart of the repentant tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I expect that her exterior life didn't change much. She could still sing those gospel songs and she still dressed well and laughed a lot. There was a new lightness to her gratitude and a joy and a genuineness that had not been there before. She realized that she was no less in need of God's grace than the lady with the paper ribbon ponytail or the surly college girl who threw the book. She realized that the cross of Jesus was for her and that the love of God was not expressed as tacit approval but as life-giving, life-saving mercy. She realized that the heart that continually asks for mercy is fertile ground for the fruit of the Spirit. Because everyone who exalts themselves will surely have the book thrown at them on judgment day. But everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen.